Hello, hello. What'd you have for breakfast, Brandy? A Red Bull. Oh my god. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> you actually had a Red Bull for breakfast? Every time, if we have it. <laughs> you have a Red Bull every day for breakfast? The Phil Stockson. Oh. <laughs> it's like espresso. That's brutal. <laughs> Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, the host of Safe Mode, and I'm joined today by Defense Scoop reporter Brandy Vincent. Brandy, welcome to the show. Hi, Elias. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show, Brandy. You're making your Safe Mode debut, and we're talking autonomy today and how the U.S. government is thinking about the development of autonomous weapon systems. Now, we tend to think about autonomous weapon system as something waiting for us in the future, like killer robots capable of making decisions about who not to kill, who to kill, and to make that decision without human input, right? That future isn't quite here, but autonomy is being deployed in U.S. military platforms. So talk us through kind of how U.S. weapon systems today rely on autonomy. Absolutely. Um, more and more every day, I think would be the answer. Every U.S. military branch is playing in this autonomous, unmanned, robotic arena. Um, programs that exist right now include uncrewed aircraft, uh, ships and ground vehicles, robotic mine detectors, um, and other uses too. Uh, there's also task forces that in particular for DOD in certain regions are experimenting and deploying these different systems. Um, I had the chance earlier this year to go down to San Diego um, and see where the Navy is deploying um, some of its uh, medium and large size drones. Mm -hmm. um, and those in action and, and some of those actually just recently for the first time transited across the Pacific um, mm -hmm. in this work that uh, the command there had been doing with um, Japan and other partners uh, in those waters. And so they're definitely in use. And then just recently, Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks announced this new initiative called Replicator. Um, the idea is to field thousands of autonomous systems like uncrewed aircraft and underwater drones in the next two years or less as part of this sort of bigger initiative to combat or offset China's massive ongoing growing military buildup. Um, there's a lot of questions about how Replicator will actually come into fruition. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so far, OSD has not shared very much, but it's definitely um, drones and drone swarms are a priority for the future. Um, Hicks has said repeatedly that uh, or she's clarified, I guess, that Replicator is not so much about autonomous weapons, but autonomous platforms. But you could still assume that if thousands of new uh, autonomous systems are set to be deployed across multiple domains by the U.S. military, likely you could expect that eventually they would have those capabilities if yeah. they're being developed. So I love that you talked about the the, the idea of the offset in this right and the u.s military has gone through several different offsets over the last i think three decades right and the the last 
kind of revolution in U.S. military affairs, if uh, I'm remembering correctly, right, had to do with precision weaponry, right, and trying to bring information together on the battlefield and have U.S. weapons be more precise than anything else. This was the era of the 90s, the smart bomb, right, being able to hit a window of, uh, you know, three feet in diameter and put a munition exactly where it needs to be. And the idea was that this offset was going to compensate for more spending elsewhere, right? That the U.S. was going to get more bang for its buck. And now we're in this new generation of a military offset where drones are a big part of this. And the replicator initiative is front and center for this, as you mentioned. And a lot of this, the, the drone swarm, I think is front and center for this, right? And concepts of autonomy are crucial to drone swarms. Can talk us through how like, the US military wants to use drone swarms. What are these things? What do they look like? And like, to what extent are they actually autonomous? I would say most reporters in uh, the Pentagon and DC are trying to figure that out too. Mm. That's questions that come up often at our military conferences. On Defense Scoop, our reporter, uh, Michaela Easley, who pays a lot of attention to aerospace um, and the Air Force has really been interrogating that for us. Um, I think that what's been happening uh, since the invasion of Ukraine and what we've seen with what they've been what with what the Ukrainian military has been able to do with cheap, um, not necessarily swarms, but systems of drones together uh, was almost a reckoning for some U.S. military officials who realized, well, we're pretty slow and a lot of our systems are expensive and heavy. I mean, hmm. MQ-9 Reapers cost so much and are being they're low and slow um, and are also being shot down recently by militia backed groups, not even full militaries. Mm. And so I think it's also part of this uh, notion that the even the drones that we've developed or the systems that we've developed for those more recent post 9-11 war, that's already changing. The, mm. the landscape is already changing with how the, mm. how they can be used. So more cheaper drones that we don't care if we lose. The word attritable, I think, is really interesting mm. with the especially with the replicator initiative because because does that necessarily mean inexpensive or expendable or not like mm -hmm. what you know i think that's part of the key but i all of that to say i think we're going to see not just swarms but um more and more different sorts of drones in all domains being incorporated into warfare okay so the incorporation of autonomy in war fighting in this way is forcing people to rethink or forcing policymakers of the Pentagon rather to rethink some of the concepts around how they use weaponry. And so this means we have to talk about this policy document 30009. Is that the right Pentagon jargon? <laughs> we can call it that. Great. Okay. So earlier this year, the Pentagon revised that document. That's the key guiding document for use of autonomous weapon systems. Tell us about the document and the revision. What's changed? Yeah, so it's something we'd been following for a bit, um, and it was it was a long time in the making, and, and there was a bit of whispers, but um, it was the first update since 2012, and this document really sets um, how members of DOD and personnel, like all of the requirements approach, all of the steps they need to take um, in consideration of even deploying or starting to experiment with these systems. Um, the new guidance is uh, largely the same structure as the earlier guidance. Um, 
a lot of the feedback has been that there was improvements in um, language in terms of going a little bit deeper in um, DOD's explanations of uh, its requirements and those processes. And then a, a notable change was that um, to implement the guidance, they established a new autonomous weapon systems working group um, and explicitly named like who the officials are within DOD that are responsible for this sort of review. So if I'm a military commander and I want to develop an autonomous weapon system, this is the review process that I have to go through in order to get sign off on my autonomous weapon system. Develop, buy, experiment, pilot, any any sort of um any sort of consideration, this is kind of the the beginning and end point of where those would be. Do we know anything about when the Pentagon is willing to sign off and when it's not? What, what do the guidelines look like for when autonomy will be allowed in a weapon system? So that's what's really interesting. The, the document itself, like I said, sets this working group and sets this sort of line of officials that are involved in reviewing and, mm. and, and sort of lays out um, what the review process looks like. Since the, so before the new update between 2012 and the update this year, um, whenever reporters would ask, have any systems been through this process? The answer was always no. Hmm. And in 2019, explicitly, they said no systems have been. Hmm. Something I noticed and part of what the reporting we're talking about today, um, my recent late October reporting is. I started to ask um, at events after this update happened or whenever I would see sources or other people who are really uh, involved in the sort of AI side of DOD, the military, the branches. Mm -hmm. And whenever we would start talking um, in a way that I was not going to necessarily be reporting the words that they were saying, people would speak in a way that suggested that systems have been through this process or at least that discussions with the working group have started. Mm -hmm. um, but they would immediately refer me back to OSD's policy office. Um, and so as I started pushing them on, have systems been through, been even yes or no, has a system been through? Um, if yes, how many, what system? These are the systems maybe that we know exist, maybe could, what, what would they be? Um, and repeatedly, uh, DOD's answer or non-answer was we do not comment on um, any system that goes through this process. So I asked, mm -hmm. is your official policy that you do not comment? And without saying yes or no, again, the spokespersons on the record would only say we do not comment. And so to me, that's really interesting because it's, it, it's not explicitly in the, uh, any, any of the guidelines or guidance that that is. And this guidance is something that DOD is really using to say, look, we're being transparent. We're being accountable. No other mm -hmm. nations or not many other nations are actually even have a process like this. So we're doing well. But then when you dig in to try to understand if it's really being used and how it's like the buck stops there. Mm -hmm. um, and so to me, that's, what's really interesting and something I'm going to be following more in my reporting uh, going forward. And if any listeners have tips of these systems who have gone through, <laughs> I I'm very keen to uh, keep an eye on this. Cause I think it's, um, 
it's going to be it's going to be something really important to watch in the years to come. Yeah, please get in touch with Brandy. She's easy to reach. So one thing <laughs> I want to touch on as well is there's a lot of exceptions mm -hmm. in this policy to to what can be reviewed. What is, what types of systems are accepted first off and what do we know about them? So I think actually the one that's most interesting uh, for your audience is um, that there's an exception for cyber weapons. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting. It's caught some attention uh, since the release. Um, I, when I was thinking about like sort of the reasons why um, on my own, I know that there are like international laws and norms for cyberspace are not really super well established That's true, currently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like that DOD maybe recognizes that and that could play a part of it. Um, another reason I was thinking is that DOD uh, recently established um, the chief digital and AI office. And one of its jobs is to monitor and evaluate AI capabilities that are released. And then it also mm. has um, like a defense acquisition system process that's supposed to catch that. And so I wonder if um, mechanisms were already in place, maybe that it thought would be a workaround. But uh, Michael Horowitz, who's the director of the um, Pentagon's Emerging Capabilities Policy Office. A few months ago, um, he had told our publication during a call with reporters that uh, there are a number of different policies that govern the development and deployment and use of cyber systems. So the department did not believe that adding a cyber requirement to the Autonomous Weapon System Directive was necessary at this time. So if you think about that at this time is really mm. important because again, these are iterative guidelines. They're going to continue to update. So it's, it's not to say necessarily that I don't think there are that it'll always be exempt. Um, but I did think that was a, an interesting, notable one. I'm curious if you have any idea why or any uh, any thoughts why it would have been. I think they want to integrate autonomous capabilities in offensive cyber weapons as quickly as possible. And I think they'd be loath to try to put restrictions on them. It seems like when we think about autonomous weapons in cyberspace, it seems like the consequences for use would be a lot lower than they would be in the physical world, right? It would be a lot less controversial for you to build an autonomous cyber weapon that takes down a server in Russia or a server in China than it would be if you developed an autonomous, you know, killer robot, drone, missile, whatever, right? And that made the decision to, you know, target uh, a server in Russia or China that was responsible for, let's say, a cyber attack on yeah. U.S. systems, right? So the threshold, I think, for using force, I think, in cyberspace, I think, generally speaking, as I understand U.S. military doctrine, is a lot lower. And so integrating concepts of autonomy in that, I think, would be a lot less controversial. But this sounds like something we should dig into. Absolutely. Yeah. Brandy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Coming up next on Safe Mode, I'm joined by the cyber psychologist Mary Aiken. Just as behavioral psychology was used to revolutionize economics and integrate human behavior into the study of financial decisions, creating the field of behavioral economics, the study of cyber psychology tries to put the human being at the center of conversations about cyber security. Dr. Mary Aiken is one of its foremost practitioners. And she also happens to be the inspiration for Patricia Arquette's character in CSI Cyber. My interview with Mary Aiken is up next on Safe Mode. 
One of the most well-worn cliches in cybersecurity is that humans are the weakest link in defending computer systems. It's a cliche, but it's also true. People click links they shouldn't, customer service desks fall for scams, and the best defensive cybersecurity technology in the world struggles to address these weaknesses. The field of cyber psychology tries to put the human back at the center of conversations about protecting computer systems. And I'm joined today by one of its foremost thinkers, Dr. Mary Aiken, a professor of cyber psychology. Mary Aiken, welcome to Safe Mode. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show. So for folks who, who might not be familiar with it, walk us through it. What is the field of cyber psychology? Cyber psychology is the study of the impact of technology on human behavior. And it was an emerging discipline within applied psychology, but now it's fully established in its own right. My specialist area is forensic cyber psychology, which is the study of criminal, deviant, and abnormal behavior online. And I'm kept pretty busy. I can imagine. So one thing that I, I think is, is, is quite fascinating with cyber psychology is it's just like there was a revolution in the field of economics where economists tried to bring the concepts of psychology into the field of economics. This was what's on behavioral economics, right? Something similar is happening with cyber psychology, right? Where you're trying to bring the human being back into account for human behavior. Kind of walk us through a little bit of that, that intellectual history. And, and if you're a cyber psychology practitioner, what are you doing? Well, first of all, you're very busy because, you know, cyberspace, you know, every day something happens that's, 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 you know, re remarkable and effectively, you know, I studied psychology back in the day and in the nineties at the very beginning of like what we now know as the internet and, you know, the early two thousands as social media. You know, what dawned on me was nothing in my studies up to that point equipped me to understand the impact of this, you know, pervasive and profound new technology. And effectively, what I did was looked to the literature and came across cyber psychology. And I thought, wow, this is the solution. You know, my professors at the time said cyber hocus pocus. Humans will never communicate like that. And here we are. So I went back and requalified, did a master's of science in cyber psychology and a PhD in forensic cyber psychology. And the thing about cyber psychology, it's a very broad area. So it encompasses uh, human factors in cybersecurity, infosec, forensic cyber psychology, operational cyber psychology, social technology, e-commerce, developmental cyber psychology, online safety technology psychology of virtual reality and artificial intelligence. So it's a very, very broad uh, discipline with lots of different research areas. So yeah, maybe let's kind of take one of those specialties and kind of make it a, a, a bit more concrete for our listeners. What are the insights that cyber psychology is bringing to bear on something like, you know, let's say like online safety technology? Yeah, so, so online safety technology, or what we call safety tech, was designed to protect humans online. So we're all familiar with the construct of online harm. That can range from harassment through to mis- or disinformation through to cyber fraud. So this broad spectrum of harmful behaviors online. Now, to date, we have had cybersecurity to protect uh, online. 
However, you know, 50 or 60 years later, cybersecurity problems are worse than ever. Why? Cybersecurity protects your data, your systems, and your networks. It does not protect what it is to be human online. And hence, we've this whole new field, which broadly falls under cyber safety, and then specifically online safety technologies or safety tech, which is the sector. And that's designed to protect humans. So we want our networks or systems to be robust, resilient, and secure. But we also need the humans who use and operate those systems to be psychologically robust, resilient, safe, and secure. And therefore, it's the combination of cyber safety and cyber security that delivers 360 resilience. And with, with Paladin, I work as um, a, a chief scientist in online safety technology with Paladin. Who, who Paladin are, is a venture capital firm, right? Exactly. Yeah, based in Washington. And you know, I've worked with them for about 10 years. And when I first started working with them, I was talking about protecting humans and everybody around the boardroom looked at me and said, what is she talking about? We have cybersecurity. But now it's evolved to a point where we had a major report come out in 2022 uh, called Towards a Safer Nation. And we found evidence of an emerging billion dollar sector. So this is great news because what we can do is develop technology solutions to technology facilitated problem criminal behavior online. You know, these, these problems, whether you're talking about hate speech, illegal content, I mean, look what's happening now between Ukraine and what's happening in the Middle East, the volume of content you have online that is either illegal in some cases or harmful in some cases or toxic in some cases. Effectively, this content has the characteristics of big data volume, velocity, variety, and therefore we need AI and ML solutions and safety tech delivers on that. Mm. So for listeners who are, are tuning in, who work in the cybersecurity industry, if they wanted to integrate concepts from cyber psychology in their work, how would they go about doing that? What, what would that mean in, in the work life of a cybersecurity professional? Well, the first thing they'd have to do is upskill. <laughs> so. Okay. <laughs> and go and do a diploma or a master's or preferably a PhD in the topic. Everyone um, wants to do a PhD. Well, you, we, uh, I actually, <laughs> I, I architected uh, with uh, Capital Technology University in Washington. We have the first online PhD in cyber psychology. And effectively, how long does that take? It, it depends how, you know, it depends on how you want to do it. If you do it by uh, research, it can take uh, three years, maybe four years. If you do it by publication, you can do it faster, three publications. And it also depends on how many prior credits you have. But check it out because we have a lot of people on the cyber psychology PhD that already have a PhD in either InfoSec or cybersecurity. And what they want to do is actually build this skill set in terms of human factors. And, and the point is that this can be applied in industry in many, many different sectors, you know, everything from, you know, clearly social media, tech sector, but through to financial services, education, e-commerce, healthcare, uh, government, military, academia, law enforcement. So our, our students come from a broad range of areas and most of them are mature and most of them are seeing, I need to do a master's because I need to upskill. I got the tech piece, but the behavioral piece is the piece that I'm missing. I guess more what I'm trying to get at is what is, what is 
the thing that is missing in the work life of cybersecurity professionals as you see it that <laughs> you know the cybersecurity that the cyber psychology field might contribute or, or add to it okay what's missing yeah what's missing I can tell you in one line a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is to be human online okay Expand on this. What is that misunderstanding? What are we misunderstanding about being human online? So, so very often we see solutions that are designed to approximate human behavior. I'll give you an example. You know, in the work I do at Paladin, we do diligence on due diligence in all sorts of companies. And, you know, in, in many years ago, and this wasn't specific to Paladin, it was another entity, they had designed a, 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 software and built a platform that actually could detect uh, insider uh, threat behavior in corporations. So fantastic. Sounds fantastic. It's the holy grail. Everybody wants to be able to identify the insiders. And I was very interested in this. And I said, so, you know, how did you, how did you baseline the behavior? And then how did you build your algorithm on top of that to actually detect the behavior? And they were very proud of their methodology. Well, they said, we got a very large sample of, you know, 200 insiders. You know, for me, immediate red flag. I mean, insiders are like hen's teeth, They're quite rare. So how do you find 200 and then measure their behavior? So I said, well, that's very interesting. How did you find them? And they said, well, our client had 40,000 employees. So what we did was recruited 200 people to act like insiders for a six month period. And then we were able to monitor their behavior, and then we were able to build this out. Now, that sums it up. Why? First of all, these random these people had volunteered, so hopeless, you know, <laughs> in terms of, of a sample. Uh, secondly, they had no motive. So they weren't stealing data or compromising the company for revenge. They weren't doing it for profit. They weren't doing it for some sort of idealism. They weren't doing it just for fun. They were doing it because they were recruited to do it. So then they were never going to act in a way that actually, you know, to access data or compromise, um, you know, systems based on their motives. So that would be totally, you know, not relevant and, and not valid. And thirdly, effectively, there were no consequences to their behavior. Therefore, they were not going to be as deep or covert. They were not going to get fired or they were not going to get a prison sentence. So what are you measuring? You're not measuring what you're purporting to measure and therefore it's flawed. So this 360 is really required to sort of rotate yourself around the problem and actually start with what it is to be human. I'll give you one quick example. We look at cyber attacks and increasing incidences of cyber attacks and everybody says, well, we've got all this technology and all this security, why is this happening? Very simple reason. Most cyber attacks between 85 and 95%, uh, you know, according to various stats, are facilitated by social engineering. Social engineering has everything to do with psychology and nothing to do with technology. And therein lies the problem. So the real problem is behavioral scientists were blindsided by rapid evolutions in technology, cybersecurity personnel with their you know, computer science background were trying to keep up and therefore collectively we're, we were blindsided. But that's changed. Now we have cyber psychology. 
now we can really begin to address these problems. Mm. I went to a performance last night of the performance artist, um, Laurie Anderson, who is quite concerned with questions of technology. And she, she shared this quote that she described as her favorite quote that she's ever heard about technology. And she attributed it to a cryptographer. And the cryptographer said, if you think that technology is the solution to your problems, then you don't understand technology and you don't understand your problem. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah. And then, well, she and then she proceeded to play a very obscure song on an electric violin. Yeah. And if you apply that to cybersecurity, you cannot defend what you do not understand. Mm. So there's an interesting project now at the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects activity. This is like the U.S. intelligence community's version of DARPA. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to get cybersecurity professionals to develop these technical tools that are cyber psychology inspired. It's got this great name, Reimagining Security with Cyber Psychology Informed Network Defenses, or Rescind. <laughs> and you're a bit involved with that effort. I'm wondering if you might be able to tell us a bit of um, what's coming out of that project. How's it going? It's a really cool um, initiative. You know, for me, I've been involved in cyber psychology for almost two decades now. So when IARPA launched a major program based on cyber psychology, it was like ET phone home. You know, we've landed. Yeah. <laughs> People now understand what we're trying to do. I actually presented at the Proposers Day for the IARPA project, and it's, it's an incredible project. And effectively, what they're doing is trying to identify and model human uh, limitations, cognitive vulnerabilities in terms of cyber attackers based on their biases. For example, um, heuristics, that's rule of thumbs that people make to use to make judgments, or a loss aversion, which is which is um, a a a it's like a sunk cost, not not effectively not wanting to pursue something because you perceive greater loss. So these are our cognitive biases that operate, and IARPA is specifically targeting those and looking at developing uh, solutions. So it's a massive undertaking. It'll be a couple of years. You'll have major defense contractors involved in it. But building on the IARPA work, which is just specifically targeting cognitive biases, myself and some other scientists, we thought, well, let's take this to the next stage and go beyond cognitive bias and go broader with this. And effectively, what we're looking at is, if you think about it at the moment when an enterprise wants to protect itself against a cyber attack, it's a passive defense. You can just try to stop the attack and that's it. But you can't go beyond the perimeter of your own network, even when attribution is certain, i.e. even when you know who is undertaking the attack. Why? Because that would be hacking back. Why? Mm. That's illegal. But the gap in the knowledge is that you are allowed to psychologically hack back. And that's incredibly exciting from a cyber defense point of view. So what does that mean, psychologically hack back? Okay, so first of all, it means that you create a profile, a cyber behavioral profile of the attacker based on the evidence. So let me give you an example. If you look at a normal crime scene, the 
you look at the modus operandi. So you look at, say, the weapons used, you know, was it a knife, was it tape? So you're looking at the tools effectively in, in, in trying to create that behavioral profile. Now transpose that online and let's look at a cyber attack and let's look at where it's evident what sort of exploit was used, for example, ransomware. Now we can start making cyber behavioral assumptions to create a profile. Let me take it a step further. We know that ransomware is a form of hostage taking. Hostage taking is as old as civilization. And we also know there's a correlation between those who take hostages and what you might consider to be psychopathic and sadistic traits. So because it's a particularly cruel endeavor. Think about ransomware, attacking a hospital or healthcare setup, and people might die. You need to be cruel to persist with that. So effectively now, when we see that ransomware is being used as an exploit, we can make a hypothetical assumption that the perpetrator, the cyber attacker, has, has this, you know, what we call the dark tetrad. It's a mixture of Machiavellianism, uh, sadism, psychopathic traits, and uh, narcissism. Pretty unpleasant uh, cocktail. And therefore, that informs how we would counter. So, for example, pleading with that cyber attacker is not going to work. So now you need to engineer a response because you have a good idea of the behavioral profile. I'll give you one more short example is that, say, the exploit was uh, creepware, uh, stalkerware, spyware. Now we're not going to make that assumption. What we're going to do is move towards what um, we describe in DSM and psychology as paraphilias. And paraphilias break that down into, for example, voyeuristic disorder. So the hypothesis there is the person who deploys that sort of spyware may lie on the voyeurism spectrum. Now, how do you counter that? The thing the voyeur fears more than anything is the idea of being spied back on. Mm. And therefore you leverage that to make them think that you actually can see them. And that's psychologically hacking back. And our paper actually is titled, it'll be published in January. It's titled, The Enterprise Strikes Back. And it's this idea of, <laughs> of, of industry engaging in active defense. And the good thing about that is that legal active defense Firstly, it's empowering. And secondly, it serves as a deterrent measure. And that is critical. I love it. That's great. So let's let's get in a bit more on, on, on cybercrime and, and who is participating in cybercrime. Um, you've recently completed a survey looking at the drivers of youth cybercrime. And I was wondering if maybe we could just start off by talking a bit about those findings, which are quite alarming. What are you seeing in, in terms of youth participation in cybercrime today? Well, the first premise is that when we talk about cyber criminals, we tend to think of them being a cohort over there. <laughs> you know, yeah. a, and we're over here. Somewhere in Eastern Europe, in Wherever. basements, driving <laughs> Lamborghinis. Exactly. Hardened right. cyber criminals. But right. what we're seeing is this very concerning evolution because you have generations now who've been raised online and effectively navigating you know pretty undesirable parts of the internet specifically uh, the dark web and dark nets 
what what is described in uh, forensic psychology as a sort of the criminal watering holes, but you know, <laughs> in cyberspace. And the problem there as well is that the barrier to entry to engage in cybercrime has been lowered. So you don't need the tech skills. You can go there, buy an exploit, rent an exploit, or, or, or hire somebody to do it for you. And young people are hanging out in these domains. We found that of our survey, 8,000 young Europeans aged 16 to 19, we found that almost 50% of that group admitted to engaging in at least one form of cybercrime in the previous year. Now, that would be everything from hacking through to cyber fraud, through to identity theft, through to online harassment, through to hate speech. So that's a really toxic, uh, you know, sort of uh, um, phenomenon in terms of, and we also found clustering. So we also found a relationship between these behaviors in terms of they weren't in isolation, they were clustered. And what it means is that there's a change really, I suppose, in what you could describe as a moral compass. You've got a whole generation of grown up, you know, downloading illegal movies or music or crack software. So when they access somebody's credit card and can use it briefly, it's not really perceived as a crime, but it is. And it's really problematic. Or when they come across an ad that says, would you like to get a job in logistics? All you've got to do is give us your bank account. We're going to put $10,000 in. You move $9,000 onto nine other accounts and you get $1,000 for your trouble. That's money muling. That's money laundering. So it can seem benign, but it's criminal. And I think that's one of the biggest uh, challenges for society is how do we address this huge growing cohort of what we describe as juvenile cyber delinquents and juvenile cyber criminality? What do you think is driving this alarming criminal participation rate, for lack of a better term, among youth online today? I think a lack of regulation of the parts of the internet that drive this behavior. I think, you know, Suler in 2004, the founder of cyber psychology, he wrote about online disinhibition. So people are disinhibited online. They would do things online. These same young people would probably not walk into a record store and steal CDs off the shelf, but they will, mm. you know, they will, they, they will illegally access music. It's not perceived as a crime. It's also perceived as being victimless. You know, when, when people engage in cyber fraud, effectively, they think, well, the bank is going to pay. It's not the person. But what we see is that when people are victims of cyber fraud online, I'm doing a large campaign for a bank at the moment, and we're finding that you know, people who get involved in, say, investment scams, they're losing like up to $100,000 uh, or the equivalent through these scams. And I suppose what, what, what we need to see is more regulation. I know nobody wants to hear that, but mm. it, is, it is the solution. And what we've seen in starting in the UK, we've seen the emergence of, for example, the UK online um, safety bill, which actually will make the social media companies who profit in this space responsible 
for these types of scams, say particularly when it comes to online harm, illegal content, or uh, cyber fraudulent activity. And I think that's really important. I think you see it in the EU as well, in terms of the EU Digital Services Act. And what's really interesting is that the EU recently contacted X and Meta and TikTok and Alphabet slash YouTube and warned them again with what was happening in the Middle East, warned them about this sort of either illegal or harmful content being hosted in a European context. So we're in this global environment, which is cyberspace ratified by NATO in 2016, yet we have different jurisdictional approaches to the shared space. So for example, in the US, you have Section 230, which, which provides immunity for online computer services in terms of third-party generated content. And you've got First Amendment in terms of uh, protecting freedom of speech. And you had in the US an enactment of a, a child safety bill, the California Age Appropriate Design Code, designed to protect children from, uh, in terms of their privacy and from harmful content. It was passed but it's recently been shut down um, by, by a judgment um, in terms of its, its interference with, uh, or potential interference with freedom of speech. So it's a tricky domain and you can see this shared cyberspace, but you can see different jurisdictional approaches. Are there any kind of obvious interventions that that you would like to see to, to prevent kids from getting involved in, in criminal behavior online to begin with? Or, or do you think that the thing that needs to happen is, is this, just this kind of regulatory regime that you, you described? I think it's a combination. I don't think we can prosecute our way out of the problem space just because of the sheer volume. Mm. I think we need lots of different approaches. I mean, the first thing is education and awareness raising. If the parents can't tell the difference between, say, when it comes to hacking, between being technologically curious and playing around on your computer and then penetrating somebody's network, how can they teach the kids? Or how can the, the teachers teach the kids? And effectively, we did a big education and awareness raising campaign where we went out to all European countries through Safer Internet Day and, and generated all sorts of content to say, this is a crime, this is a cyber crime. So that's the first thing is the education piece. The second thing is actually understanding that human behavior changes in cyber context, that kids are growing up in this space to look at, say, you know, the minimization and status of authority online. And that's a policy policing approach. And then the third approach is the online safety technology approach is incentivizing industry to get involved in designing solutions. So if you think about safety tech uh, solutions, and that's why it's great that VCs are getting interested in this area, you can, you can drive innovation, you can tackle these solutions in terms of technology um, solutions to technology facilitated harmful behavior, you can build business, you can generate profit, and you can simultaneously tackle complex social tech problems. So it's a win-win. And that's why it's great to see the emergence of this new safety tech, tech sector. In fact, I was the one who named it. 
in in the UK when they launched the sector, they wanted to call it the online safety technology sector. And I said, look, this is part art, part science. We've got health tech, we've got fintech. We need to have safety tech. Mm. Okay, so so speaking of inspiration, before we go, I want to ask you one thing. I heard once that you're the inspiration for the main character in CSI Cyber. That's true. Is that true? It is true. Yes, I was working on a White House uh, project, and I got a call from uh, William Morris, and I thought it was Philip Morris, the cigarette company. I was like, no, I don't do endorsements, but it was it was William Morris. They asked the me talent to... agency, William Morris. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they asked me to come to Hollywood uh, for a meeting. You know, I have survivor's guilt because I know how hard people work in writing or to be part of, you know, the whole Hollywood experience. I had one meeting with CBS and they commissioned a primetime TV show based on me and Patricia Arquette played me in the show. So how do you feel about Patricia Arquette portraying you? Oh, she was great. She was really good. She was really good. And, you know, I got to work with her and the cast on set. I got to be in the writer's room for 33 episodes. I mean, boy, they worked hard. And we produced 33 hours of television and the pilot was aired in 170 countries worldwide. And for me as an academic, you know, we publish in journals, but my goodness, that's dissemination. Yeah. I was able to embed all of the science in these episodes. That's education and awareness raising. Mm. I think that's a great note to end on. Mary Aiken, thank you so much for coming on the show. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.